So at this point, the book of Judges, as far as its history, ends. And what remains in the book of Judges is not in chronological order now. This is an appendix to the book of Judges as we get into chapter 17. And it tells us basically of the moral conditions of the nation of Israel during this time after Joshua. And the stories, some of them, take us clear back to the time immediately after Joshua. So shift gears a little bit here in your mind and go in reverse. And we come to the end of the historical chronological order with Samson. After Samson, there arises then Samuel. And we'll get that after we get through the book of Ruth. But now we're going to get into an appendix and we're going to go back in the next few chapters and examine some of the moral decay that was going on in Israel during the time of the period of the judges. And it just gives us an insight to the moral corruptness that existed among God's people during this time when they lacked a real consciousness of God as their king. So the first story begins in chapter 17. There was a man who lived on Mount Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, Hey, you remember those 1,100 shekels of silver that were stolen from you, and you cursed the person who stole them? And you said, let the person who stole this be cursed? He said, hey, Mom, I did it. And here are the 1,100 shekels back. And she said, oh, blessed be my son of the Lord. I had really intended to take that silver and make some little idols for you. And so she gave him a portion of the silver in order that he might make a little image. And he gave them to the founder, who made a graven image, and they were in the house of Micah, these molten images. And the man Micah had a house of God, and he made an ephod and a teraphim, and he consecrated one of his sons, who became his priest. For in those days there was no king in Israel. But every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Verses 1 through 6. And therein is an insight into the moral decay. They had lost the fact that God was to be their king. They lost the consciousness of that fact. And every man, rather than being ruled by God, was doing that which was right in his own eyes. Kind of sounds like today. It was a period of anarchy. Everybody just did what he wanted to do, what was right in his own eyes. And it's sort of what they're trying to bring to pass in this essentialism that's happening. Everybody just relate to experience as you, as you should relate to it and feel it. There really isn't any right or wrong way now. If it feels good, do it, you know? If it feels right, do it. And this is the kind of chaotic condition that was going on in Israel. This kind of anarchy where everyone was just doing what was right in their own eyes, not really following the government of God or the law of God. And it does sound so much like the world today, doesn't it? Now, Micah in making these images was not making really pagan kind of images, but images, no doubt, that would represent God to him. 
But in the second commandment, God had expressly forbidden making any graving images or likenesses of God to bow down and to worship. So he was violating the commandment of God and trying to make an image of God. He was not turning from Jehovah in that sense of making an image of Baal or Molech or one of the other pagan gods, but he was trying to make an image of Yahweh God. And then with the teraphim and the ephod, seeking to tie the whole worship of Jehovah together, making a little worship center in his own house where he has his own little idols in the house where he goes to pray and goes to worship. Now, this was expressly forbidden by God, and yet having lost the consciousness of God's presence, he is wanting something to remind him of the presence of God. And so he's made his little worship center in his house with his little idols and everything else, and the place where he can go and pray his own little private altar. Now, whenever a person makes an idol, the very fact that he is making an idol indicates that the person has lost the consciousness of the presence of God. The second thing it indicates is that he is desiring to regain that consciousness of God's presence. And so he has set up this as a reminder to him of God's presence. And it is actually speaking of a desire to regain something that is lost, a vitality of a relationship with God. And whenever a person has to set up an image or an idol, it is a testimony that that person has lost something vital, something very vital in their relationship with God. And he needs some kind of little reminder to him of God's presence. And it is always a mark of spiritual deterioration. Any image, any idol of anything is a mark of spiritual deterioration. So it is important to note that Micah wasn't really turning his back on Jehovah, on Yahweh. For he even speaks of Yahweh, but he has lost something vital in his relationship with Yahweh, with Jehovah, which causes him to make these little images and set up a worship center as a place for his prayers. Now, there was a young man who lived in Bethlehem, who was a Levite, and he was living there, but he departed from Bethlehem, just sort of looking for a place to live. And he came to Mount Ephraim, to the house of Micah on his journey. And Micah said to him, where are you coming from? And he said, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem, and I am journeying that I can find a place. Micah said to him, well, if you'll just dwell with me and be a priest in my house, I will give you 10 shekels of silver annually and a new suit and all of your food. So the Levite went in, verses 7 through 10. Now, here is a deterioration in the Levite's life in that he is becoming now a professional religionist, sort of selling himself now for religious purchases for an annual salary of 10 shekels of silver and a new suit and his daily food. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man was to him as one of his own sons. And Micah consecrated the Levite. The young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that Jehovah will do me good, 
seeing that I have a Levite as my priest, verses 11 through 13. So it was a mercenary thing, you know, I mean, I'm going to prosper now because I have a Levite for a priest. And that's the only reason why he wanted the Levite is so he could prosper. In other words, it was the idea of using God for gain. And Paul speaks in the New Testament of the heir of those who think that godliness is a way to gain. He calls it a pernicious doctrine. And he said, turn away from such people who say that godliness is a way to get rich, that godliness is a way to prosperity, that godliness is a way to gain. And Paul calls it an evil doctrine. Micah has that same concept. Uh, God's going to prosper me now because I've got a Levite for my priest. So he's buying now his way in, in a sense, into prosperity in hiring the priest. Now, in chapter 18, it's been setting the stage for the rest of the story. You've got now the Levite, the young kid from Bethlehem, as a professional religious priest and a personal priest of Micah in his house. Now, in those days, in, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and the tribe of the Danites sought an inheritance to dwell in, verse 1. For they were unable to drive the Philistines out of that territory of Ashdod and Ashkelon and Gaza and that beautiful valley area, and they only at this point occupied a small little territory of 20 miles from Jerusalem towards Tel Aviv, the little valley of Eshkol. But this whole territory was still occupied by the Philistines, and they couldn't drive them out, and so they were beginning to look for another place to live. And so they sent out six men to sort of look over the whole country to see if there wasn't another place that they might move, that the tribe of Dan might inhabit in order that they can have more territory for farming and all, because that area that they had taken just wasn't sufficient for their needs. And so these men started north, and they came to Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and they stayed there. And when they were by the house of Micah, they knew the voice of the young man, the Levite. And so they turned in and they said to him, what brought you here? And how much are you making in this place? And what are you doing? And he said to them, well, I came to Micah and he needed a priest, so he hired me. And he gives me 10 shekels of silver a year, a new suit and all my food. And I'm his priest. And they said, well, ask counsel of God for us that we might know whether we're going to be prosperous in our search. And the, so the priest said to them, go in peace before the Lord is your way wherever you go. Verses two through six. In other words, go in peace. God is going, he's going before you and he's going to prosper you in your way. So the five men departed and they went to Laish and they saw the people that were there, how they dwelt carelessly after the manner of the Zidonians. They were quiet and they were secure and there was no magistrate in the land that might put them to shame for anything. And they were far from the Zidonians and had no business with any man. Verse 7. So they found the city of the people there in Laish and the people were just, well, they were living very carelessly. They didn't have business or trade with anybody else and they were a long way from Zidon. Actually, they were clear over the Lebanese mountain range from Zidon, and they were isolated, and really, they looked to be an easy prey. 
Now, they dwelt in a beautiful section of the land. Right past the city there flowed the Jordan River, and it was near the headwaters of the Jordan. So there was no water pollution. The water was crystal clear. And it's great, and there's good farming territory around there, and it's just a beautiful, fertile valley. And they said, wow, man, look at this, you know. It'd be nice to live up here. So they came back to their tribe, and they described the place that they had found, its beauty and its advantages. Ah, there's plenty of water, man. There's there's good area to live and, and all, and it's beautiful, and it just really is. It's one of the most beautiful places in Israel. And so they sent back an army of 600 men in order to take this city. And so when they came back to the Mount of Ephraim, they came back again to this priest. And these guys went in and they said, hey, man, hey, we need a priest for our tribe. Wouldn't it be better for you to be a priest over a whole tribe than just a priest over one family? And we'd give you a better salary. So the young man went with them, but he ripped off the little idols and all that were in there, and they took them with him. And so when Micah came home, he found that the idols had been ripped off, and the priest was gone. And so some of his neighbors gathered together, and they were having this big conflict, and they said, well, they went that direction. And so Micah went chasing after them, and these, these guys, man, I mean, there's 600 tough guys, and they're heading off for war. And so here comes Micah, and he says, hey, man, what's the big deal ripping me off, taking away my priests and taking away my silver idols and so forth? And he was really just laying it on them. And they said, hey, are you looking for trouble? You might as well go home. There's no sense in you getting hurt. And so he looked around, and he saw all these guys with their swords and everything else. And so he decided to go home. Eh, wisdom, the better part of valor. And so they went up with this young man and they came to Laish and they captured it. And they destroyed the inhabitants and the tribe of Dan, a good portion of them, moved on up and inhabited the upper part of the Hula Valley, where the headwaters of the Jordan River come out from Mount Hermon. And so that became the territory of the tribe of Dan. And the city was called Dan. And the river itself was named Jordan, or out of Dan, because there is the headwaters of the Jordan River, and it comes out of Dan, and so that river became named Jordan, out of Dan. So that is just one of the little stories that is told here, and the second story that gives us an insight to the confusion that existed, both civil and religious during this particular time, has to do with a story of a man who was a Levite. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel. Verses, verse 19, chapter 19, verse 1. Now, no king in Israel. You see, Israel was intended by God to be a theocracy. Governed by God. God wanted to be the king. He wanted the people to submit to his rules, to his reign. But the declaration, there was no king in Israel, means that the people were not submitting to God at all. Thus, there was confusion. Everybody was doing what he felt was right, and there was great confusion. And these things that are told here are not told in a sense of 
condoning what's happening. In fact, they're told in the other sense of condemning what they're doing. But just showing the confusion that existed during this particular period of the history of the children of Israel. And the whole purpose is just to relay, actually, the confusion that exists during the period of time. So it came to pass there was no king. There was a certain Levite who was also living in Mount Ephraim. And he took him, a concubine, from Bethlehem, Judah. Verse 1. Now, this is wrong that a priest should have a concubine. I mean, not his wife, just a concubine. This is following, really, the pagan practices of the people that were around him, and even the priests. Now, his concubine left him and went out and was a prostitute, returned to her father who was living in Bethlehem. And so, after a few months, yeah, he was missing her, and so he decided to go back and talk to her into coming back with him. And they had a live-in relationship, living together without marriage. And some of the people think today they are so modern and so chic, you know. Ah, we're just living together. Hey, this has been going on for a long, long time. So, you're old-fashioned. There's nothing modern about that. Sin's been around from the beginning. So, he went back. He went down to Bethlehem, where she'd gone back to her dad to talk her into moving back in, in with him again. And her dad took a liking for this guy, and he was good in his sales pitch, and she decided to go back with him. But the dad said, Aha, you know, ah, stick around, man. You know, just, just let, let's drink and have a good time. And so they drank, and it got evening, and the guy said, Well, I'll be going home now. Oh, whoa, whoa, no, you, you can't go tonight. Stay until tomorrow, you know, and, and, and get a good start tomorrow. So we stayed to the next day, and so they got up and started to celebrate again, and they kept drinking through the day, and well, here came evening again, and he said, well, I better get going. Oh, well, you can't go. It's, it's getting dark. You might as well wait until tomorrow and leave tomorrow. And so he spent the night again. And, you know, this, it's the same old thing. And then in the afternoon, he said, okay, hey, I got to be going. He said, oh, no, no. Now spend the night and tomorrow and, and get up really early and get a good start. And he said, hey, I've got to go. So he saddled up the two donkeys. He took his servant and the concubine, and they started back towards Ephraim from Bethlehem. It was getting to evening as they came to Jebus, which was later to be Jerusalem, about five miles from Bethlehem. And, they, and the servant said, we better turn into Jebus here and spend the night. And he said, no, 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 I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to spend the night here in a city that doesn't belong to the Israelites. Let's go on further. And so they came to Ramah, which is sort of a northern suburb of Jerusalem. And somehow that didn't appeal to him. So they went a little further to a city of the Benjamites, the city of Gibeah. And he said to his servant, come, let us draw near and we'll spend the night here. As the sun went down, they were by Gibeah. That belongs to Benjamin. And they turned into the lodge in Gibeah. And when he went in, he sat down in the streets, for there was no man that took him into his house for lodging. Verses 14 and 15. Now, in those days, they didn't have really motels or hotel kind of things. And people were just gracious. They would just take you into their home. If you were a traveler, 
coming along, hospitality was a thing of the day, you know, and, and come and spend the night with us. And no one invited him to spend the night. And an old man was coming in from the fields and, and had been working rather late, and he also was from Mount Ephraim, which meant that he was of the tribe of Ephraim, not a Benjamite. And he saw this fella and, and the street, and he said, Hey, man, what, what are you doing here in the street? You can't spend the night in the street. And he said, well, no one's invited me home. And he said, well, come on home. Come to my house. And he said, where are you from? He said, I am from Ephraim. I have been journeying from Bethlehem. Oh, I'm an Ephraim too. Where are you from? Do you know so-and-so? Yeah, and, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. And so he invited him home to spend the night with him. And as it got dark, the men of Gibeah came to the door, and they began to pound on the door. And they said, send the man out that we saw coming into your house, that we might know him. Verses, verse 22. So now we find that very thing for which God judged Sodom and destroyed. It is happening even among his own people there in the tribe of Benjamin. The very same thing that happened when the angels came down into the house of Lot in Sodom, and the men of the city circled the house and said, send them out that we might know them, or that we might have sexual relations with him, or homosexual relations with them. And there we see the moral depravity that has taken place even among God's people, the Benjamites. And so it's giving us here an insight into the moral decay of Israel during the period of the judges. And again, an insight into the whole cultural scene. And the old man said, hey, this man's my guest. Now, hey, I've got a daughter who's a virgin, and here's his concubine. We'll send them out to you and do whatever you want with them. But don't, please, don't touch my guest. So, women, be thankful for Jesus Christ. I mean, what he has done for women's rights, what Jesus has done for the woman is absolutely glorious. You take the cultures of the world where the Christian influence is not strong and look at the place of the woman in those cultures, even today. It is Jesus Christ who elevated the woman from something of a slave something to be pawned off by man's will, and elevated her into an equal in the sight of God. For in Christ Jesus, there is neither male nor female. There's no superior sex or anything else. There is just a beautiful equality in Jesus Christ. And Jesus elevated the woman from this place of the pagan cultures where she was put down and subjugated and treated like dirt. And Jesus lifted the womanhood and gave respect and dignity to women, which the men weren't willing to grant in their pagan cultures. And you go today to Israel and look at the place of the Bedouin women and, he, and be thankful now for what Jesus Christ has done for you, lifting, bringing the respect and glory and honor and equality to the women. But he had not yet come, and they were still following the cultures of the people around them. So here's a man willing to give his daughter, his virgin daughter, to a lustful crowd. 
hey man, don't touch my guest that has come in. And so they sent the concubine out and all night long, the men raped her one after another until the morning. And she crawled back to the steps of the house and there she died. In the morning when the priest came out and he said, hey, get up, let's get going. What ails you? And there was no answer. He touched her and he found she was dead. So he put her on the donkey, took her back to Ephraim to his house, and there he butchered her body, cutting it into 12 pieces and sending a piece of her body to all the tribes.